0: Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 verses 1 through 4. Hear now God's word. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. but according to the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. His word is good.
1: Well, thank you for that. Thank you for that reading, Paul. We are in a new series that we have creatively entitled Romans 8, all right? Perfectly positioned between... Seven and nine. Romans 8. Romans 8 is an incredible chapter. I'm going to take you into a little bit of setup in just a moment. Uh, But I'm excited. We're going to be in this series for around seven to eight weeks. It's going to take us to the beginning of the summer. But let me get us started through these first few verses here. Uh, A couple of thoughts as we get going. Number one, you probably have noticed the concept of acceleration of disinterest around what is considered cultural Christianity. The acceleration of people who are leaving church on the weekends because they were weekend warriors, folks who are not really living into the gospel, but it's just been part of their tradition. It's just been something that they have done. There is a growing disinterest in that, and I'm very glad. That's not Christianity at its best. It's Christianity subpar, or you may still have a real relationship with Jesus, but it's not animating your life. And there's this growing desire for an authentic experience of God that doesn't require smoke and mirrors to get our attention. Don't impress me. Just take me to the heartbeat of Christianity. Then let God do the work in community and let's see what happens. But if the tradition, right, this cultural interest in Christianity is going to fade, maybe something in its place will really grow. There's an interest, there's a growing interest in a real experience of Christianity. Let me say this. At our church, we value good thinking, theology, orthodoxy, cultural uh, application of the gospel without manipulating the text, allowing the Bible to speak on its own terms without force fitting it into cultural values. We value that. The Bible is something that can speak across generations. We value good thinking. We value the mind, but... I want to say that the mind is really just the starting point of an experience of God, encountering God. The Bible talks about being changed and transformed by an encounter with a relationship with God. But maybe one of the big questions you have had and maybe one of the reasons that cultural Christianity and the disinterest in it has grown is because we don't know how. Like, I don't really know how to encounter God. My mind gets encountered when I hear somebody teach and preach. Maybe I go to a community group or a small group. I've done that for years, some people would say. But I don't have an encounter with the living God. I don't know if I'm being changed or transformed. How do we do it? I want to say that the book of Romans is one of the most significant books of the Bible for various reasons. But Romans 8 is probably one of the most important chapters in this very important book. And one of the reasons Romans 8 is so important is because it answers the question of how do we encounter and how do we experience God? How do we ensure that our entire lives are shaped around what he says and what he has taught us rather than just my mind with some ideas? Isn't that what you want if Christianity is real? I want my whole life to go in God's direction. I just want to hear some good thoughts and then move on change happens. This is the key. Ready? Change happens when our hearts are touched and warmed and reshaped by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's how your life is changed. Our church values the concept of formation. Guess what? We are not into self Formation. This is not a self-betterment project at Trinity. That they've got this beautiful rule of life, and I'm learning to experience different practices so that I can become a better person. That's not what Romans eight is about. Romans eight is about posturing your life so that you experience the reality of God in you. You know what you don't need? More sermons from me, and more good books to read, and more podcasts. I'm happy to provide them, but that is not what you need. You need first and foremost an encounter. With the living God, whose name is the Holy Spirit, who lives within. But that's where lives are changed. God will change you. I can't change you. Your spouse can't change you. Your work can't change you. God can change you. And Romans 8, you know, it has no imperatives. You don't have to do anything in Romans 8. It is filled with privilege we're going to spend our time looking at the privilege. And what you're going to find is you go into these promises, God wants you not only to understand them, but to live into them with incredible assurance and hope and security. And that's why we have titled today as we start absolute security. I'll take that. Anybody want absolute security or just kind of half-hearted security? No security. I'll take absolute security. That's what this is about. And you know how the book, the chapter is going to end? You can't be separated from this God. There's no condemnation, promise one, and it's going to bookend on the other end. You'll never be separated from this God. Hope, vision, security, and it's absolute. It's an incredible chapter. But I hope as we go into this chapter, you will say, Holy Spirit, meet with me, right? Meet with me. I want an encounter with the living God. I don't want to just know about you. I want to know you on the inside. Three things I'll walk you through today. Number one, we're gonna look at a glorious truth. Number three, number two, I'm going to number three already. Number two, we're gonna look at an animating reality. And number three, we're gonna look at a thrilling calling. So a glorious truth, an animating reality. And number three, a thrilling calling. So under point one, a glorious truth. Look at verse one with me. You ready? I love this verse. You should love this verse too. Verse one says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to turn off my mic and have a seat. We are done, right? This is incredible. This is the glorious truth of the gospel. There is, therefore, now, not later, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Anytime you see the word, therefore, you stop, you pause. Men, if you hear your wife saying, What are you still sitting over there for? I think it's a different use than what Paul is using. That means come in here and help me. You should get up. You should move. But when you hear the word, therefore, you should stop. You should perk up and listen. And we're here in Romans chapter eight, of course. And Paul is saying, everything that I have said to this point is gonna apply to a therefore. Everything that I have rehearsed about the sin sickness in the human heart. Every generation's got to deal with it. There's nothing you can do to fix it. God has to fix it. God sent his son for you. Paul calls him the second Adam. As all fell in Adam, all who are in Christ shall be redeemed. He goes into the glorious principles of justification and freedom and grace and mercy. All of that in the early chapters of the book of Romans. But then he's also making a connection to Romans chapter 7, which comes right before it. There's a clear connection to what Paul is saying there, which is the problem or the reality of indwelling sin. In the life of people who are following Jesus, this is the problem of Romans 7, the problem of indwelling sin in the lives of those who apprentice under Jesus. If you're a Christian, no, not everybody in the room is. If you're a Christian in the room, you should stop and say, there's an allowance in the scripture for my story to be told, the tension that I feel in my life and my heart between following Jesus and going the old way? Yes, look at what he says in Romans seven fifteen. Paul writes, "'For I do not understand my own actions, "'for I do not do what I want, "'but I do the very thing I hate.'" And then verse 18, "'For I know that nothing good dwells in me, "'that is in my flesh, "'for I have the desire to do what is right.'" But not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Some writers have called this the double nature of the believer. That I've got a double nature, that I am tugged in two different, very real and opposing directions. I am a sinner, yes but I'm also redeemed. Christ has forgiven me in full, but on most days I choose to do things that I don't really wanna do. And in fact, Paul uses the language of, I do things that I hate. And there's a very real tension in my faith, my new life with Jesus. I feel the tug towards what is good and honorable. Man, I wanna use my life to bless him and to honor him and to serve other people. But there's also this law within me that says, you matter the most, live life your way. And that's the tension of Romans 7. Tension is normal, sin is real, and wants to please itself. There's gonna be a lot of days where you choose to honor you, choose to do the things that you hate. And therefore, there is a whole lot of room within Christianity for repentance and return and humility. But this is the sort of person That Paul is talking to in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. That's caught between the old life and this new life in Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying. You ready? Dear struggling Christian. I want you to believe this deep down in your core. There is now in Jesus Christ no condemnation over your life. That's what he's talking about. That's who he's talking to. The word translated as condemnation, it's a legal term and it means there is no debt to pay. There are no more charges against you. God cannot come after you and punish you because of what he has already done and already punished in his son. This is why Good Friday is called good because you get the pronouncement upon your life. There is now no condemnation over your life. But then you're going to say to yourself, but what about all the habitual sin in my life? You don't know. You don't know my life. You don't know what I do. You don't know what I've seen. You don't know what I say. You don't know the struggle. You don't know the shame. You don't know the things that I deal with on the day to day. You're right. I don't. And sometimes we think to ourselves, God offers this pronounced sort of no condemnation over my life when I repent, when the Spirit presses on me and enough is enough and I say, you know what? I'm gonna move towards God today. He's gonna put his blessing on my life. And so therefore, after I have been all prayed up, sound familiar at all? Therefore, I have no condemnation today on the day in which I'm doing pretty good. Then I fluctuate throughout my day and throughout my week between feeling condemned and then when I'm doing good Feeling not condemned. A very normal rhythm for Christians. This is not what Romans 8 1 says at all. You know what it says? If you're in Christ, there is now, right now, no condemnation. And I love this word because what it actually means is not that I can fluctuate, that it can come back and get me, but it means it doesn't exist anymore. It's not an option for the Christian. Condemnation over your life, feeling guilt, feeling shame for who you really are at the core is no longer an option for the Christian. It doesn't even exist. Double jeopardy, you're familiar with that term? Not talking Alex Trebek, right? We're talking about the legal term. That means that you cannot be prosecuted more than once for the same offense. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, put it. He said, no criminal can be hanged a second time. One death is all the law requires. Believers died in Christ unto sin once, and now they legally die no more. Our condemnation has spent itself upon our gracious Representative. That means in Jesus Christ, you cannot be held accountable for sin that has already been paid for. Someone has already been condemned for your sin, all of it, and now the verdict is in. You're guilty, but you're no longer condemned. So guilty. I know who I am. Holy Spirit has shown me. See, it does not get swept under the rug. We are guilty. Christ has paid for it, and it is gone. What happens when we forget that? All sorts of negative things, spirals, right? Forms of thinking about life and performance and who we really are. But when we remember this, man, life completely changes. Small example, Romans chapter 8. I'm sorry, John chapter 8. When the scribes and the Pharisees brought this woman who was caught in adultery before Jesus, you may be familiar with the story. They wanted to see if they could test Jesus and see if he would disregard the law or uphold the law. And you may remember that John tells us that Jesus said to the crowd who was gathered around this woman, he says to them, let him who is without sin be the first among you to throw a stone at this woman who has been caught in adultery. That was her punishment. That was the law. Jesus says, if you've got no sin, throw the first stone. One by one, they all leave, leaving only the person without sin. Face to face with that woman, Jesus and her. You know what he says to her? Has anybody thrown a stone? Has anyone condemned you? You are guilty. You have lived a life apart from the way and the rule of God. But if you are connected to me, Jesus says, there is now no condemnation for you, lady, for you, woman, and for you. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to understand and to celebrate the gospel. I love this illustration. It's from Ray Ortland, a pastor in Nashville. He says this. He says, the gospel is like this. God approaches you and says, I have here a credit card. It is a credit card of justification. It accesses the infinite resources of the merit of Christ. If you take it, you can charge all of your moral debts to this card. There is no limit on this card. It will give you a new credit rating at my database, and you can carry this card with you at all times. Whenever you sin, you can charge it to Jesus, so I will never declare you bankrupt. How about it? Will you accept the card? Right? Jesus is saying only if, there's a huge if, if you are with me, there is no condemnation, which means if you're not with Jesus, the condemnation remains. Who has paid for you? Who has given their life for you? What have you accepted that Christ has done to cover you? God died for you as he fully covered your life. If not, condemnation is still a very big real reality. But if you are a Christian, it's completely gone. Verse three. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. This means that how God sees you becomes the dominant perspective in your life. God's perspective on your life stands over your strengths and your weaknesses and your last week and your tomorrow, whether it was amazing or whether it's an abysmal failure. The perspective of God upon your life becomes the dominant. Perspective. You know what this means? Some of you say, but what about me? What if I am really caught in some long, deep, thick, habitual sin? Does it apply to me? Well, friends, let's get you some help. But if you are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation over your life. And some of you say, man, my marriage is a complete disaster. And if I'm honest, I am the reason well, friend, let's get you some help, but there is no condemnation over your life in Christ Jesus. Well, what if I struggle with some of the more complex issues like sexual orientation or gender dysphoria? Well, let's work together to understand God's perspective on those issues and other issues that are similar to it, but there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When our enemy tries to convince you that the gospel is not good enough to cover you and your life. When he carries messages of condemnation into your life and your heart, you wake up and the first thing you feel is shame. If you are a Christian, you know what you need to say to this enemy that we have? You are a liar. And you have been a liar from the beginning. And I have listened for a long time, but there is a new voice of goodness being spoken into my life. I've heard it preached before, but for the first time, I'm starting to believe it. Starting to believe that the good news could actually be true. So many of us live waiting for the verdict. If we could put this painting up briefly. This painting is by Abraham Solomon. I believe it was 1859. I think it's on display on the getty right now you see this family waiting for the verdict of the father he's in the right hand corner these are different family members waiting to understand and to see what's actually going to transpire in his life so many christians their life looks a bit like this now what's god going to do what are people going to say what are they going to think and have i done enough And what can I do to kind of boost the verdict? What can I do to to move forward in life? What can I do to get something pronounced over my head and heart? Well done. I don't feel like I'm doing well done. I feel like this older gentleman on the left. This is my life. This is my experience of God. I'm waiting on the verdict, but the verdict has been spoken and it is spoken over your heart. Not guilty. No condemnation. Are you in connection with Jesus? Can't be tried twice. He will never be tried twice. Cross once. There's never going to be condemnation for Jesus the Christ. Are you in Him? Then there's none for you. None for you. Completely set you free. A glorious truth at the beginning of chapter eight. Let's look at an animating reality. Verse one and two. You ready? Verse one and two. Verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Here's how Tim Keller puts verses 1 and 2. He writes, verse 1 tells us we are delivered from the legal condemnation of sin. No more punishment for you. It's been absorbed. And verse 2 tells us that we are being delivered from the actual condemnation power of sin. But there is a dominating reality that's baked into most world religions and most world philosophies that says, I can find life and salvation through obedience, through law keeping, and through morality. The moral codes or the laws of each religion provide the runway for attempting to secure the good life now and the good life To come. You know that Christianity also provides a runway for Christians, for people to be able to understand what the good life, the moral life, look like, what are God's prerogatives for humanity? I don't have to guess what it means to live a flourishing life. He tells me. Tells me what it looks like. Christianity says the same thing. We also have a moral runway provided by God primarily through the Old Testament law, things like the Ten Commandments. But it also tells us that we don't have the proper fuel in the tank to take flight. That's the distinctiveness of Christianity. Every world religion has a runway. Christianity says you don't have the right heart. You don't have the right fuel to be able to see this thing take off. See, God gives us a vision of the life he desires and he demands when he lays out the law, that moral runway for humanity. He tells his people over and over again that if they obey, then they're going to flourish. They're going to have a good life. But every single human being has been unable to do it. And every single human being to this point in history has experienced the punishment for law breaking, which is death. It's Very simple. Sin in the human heart causes death. It is our right it is what we have earned, and it is what Jesus absorbed. So when we take our last breath here, we immediately have our first breath there. This is what Christianity talks about. But remember, the problem that gets laid out in the Old Testament isn't the runway per se. It's the fuel in the human heart. Look at verse three. Verse three says, for God has done What the law, this is complex theology, by the way, Romans is not an easy book. Romans three, verse three, sorry, for God has done what the law weakened by you, weakened by me, weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This week, I was sitting on, the, on my bed having a conversation with my mom. Our little doggy bear was sitting there, right? My, my main man. Um, and I look over to the left, and what do you know is one of those great, big, huge lizards, okay? They're supposed to be outside, right? I'm not from California. They're supposed to stay outside. I was in my bedroom, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to get that thing, but my wife doesn't want to get that thing. So I got to corner this thing and put it into the box. I'm a lizard maestro. All right, I know exactly how to corner that thing, kind of give him a little shoo-shoo, got him in the box, took him outside, no big deal. That's what this text is saying that God did to his son. That he cornered his son and he allowed him to be condemned, taken out of the house, taken out of the city, taken outside. He said, you couldn't do that, right? Not take Jesus out, but you couldn't earn But Jesus can earn. And so Jesus stands in our place. He's condemned. And all of the sin is condemned in him, which means that there is this new animating principle that has been released into human existence, that where once I had to earn and prove. And often listen, it doesn't mean it has to be religious proving. This could just be doing an incredible job at work and saying that that defines me. This doesn't have to be connected to proving to God, but it is proving your worth. This is what it means to understand that the law is a runway, but my heart doesn't have the right fuel to get me up to the God of love and grace and forgiveness. The law isn't the problem. We are. But guess what? Ray Ortland says it like this. He says that God has replaced the best that we can do with the best that he can do. That's Romans 8, 2. Our sin prevented us from using the law to justify ourselves. So God did what we couldn't do because we weakened the law. So he sends Jesus who keeps the law perfectly. Then he dies. Jesus lived up to the standards of the moral law. Then he's punished so we could be free. And guess what? What he's saying is the Holy Spirit is the best that God can do. Holy Spirit. You have been looking to be made alive and set free by what you have accomplished and what you've done. It's never worked. And so he goes, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna send the best, send to myself. And I'm gonna animate your life. I'm gonna give you the freedom that you've been longing for and looking for but have never been able to find through obedience, through moralism, through being good enough. And I'm gonna put something new in your spirit that's gonna overwhelm your heart and a flood of water, Jesus talks about it, streams of living water, Ezekiel 36, it's the promise of old, I'm giving you a new heart because you ain't got the fuel and I'll do it for you. The best you can do is not enough, but the best I can do, the best God can do is where Christianity takes off. Let me take you to this third part, a thrilling calling, The glorious truth and animating reality, God in you. This is just the beginning. This is what this whole letter is about. God in you, not you in you, not you doing moral things, not you going to church more. God in you is going to do what you can't do. The animating reality of God in you gives you a thrilling calling. Not only are we free from the law in proving ourselves, but we are now free for it in a very different way. Look at verses three and four. Verse three says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he cornered it. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not in Jesus. In us, it says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Can I just ask you this question? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you apprentice under him, what is your salvation for? What's it for? Why did he come to save you? It'd be very easy for us to say something like this. Well, we have been saved to get into heaven one day. Well, yes. Yes and amen. Eternity is real. My wife's grandfather is not doing well. We got a call that he might be in his last few days. And as we were driving, I started to weep. It's because eternity is real. I don't know for sure if he knows Jesus. I don't know for sure. You know what I did? I said, I will call him right now on FaceTime. But I got one better. My dad. My dad lives near there. And my dad loves Jesus and he's a pastor and he will share the gospel with anybody. And my dad heard that sweet George Schmidt might not make it. So he drove up to the hospital and he had a very intentional conversation with George, my grandpa-in-law, about the end of his life. Eternity matters immensely. But so many of us think about getting out of the world getting into heaven instead of thinking that maybe God has a calling on my life, and part of that calling is to bring heaven here right now. That's what verses three and four are starting to talk about, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in who? In you. In you. You were put on this planet to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, which means you're put on this planet to be given a new heart and to reflect the gospel in the way in which you live. That's your calling. So many, of the, so many of us wonder, what am I doing here? Individualism says, define it for yourself. Go figure it out. If you feel fulfilled, awesome. If you don't, go find something else. If you didn't find it, well, survival of the fittest. That's not the way Christianity works. It says that Jesus was sent to our planet to give you a new heart so that the way in which you live would reflect him and his way in the world. Did you know that? That's your calling. Guess how you can do it? Teacher, doctor, stay at home mom or dad, garbage collector, anybody. Does not matter. Your calling is to exemplify Jesus in the way in which you live. Jesus came for that. That's why he came. Not to take you out it's part of it, but to help you live well in, to fulfill his way in the world. Do you wanna be a part of that? I don't want a new life. I want a new heart. I don't wanna just know. I wanna encounter. Romans 8 is about the spirit of God. As I close us in prayer and we have this meal, let's pray that the Spirit would meet with us, that we would release the condemnation that we have carried, that the Holy Spirit would give us absolute security, and we would be on a trajectory of getting health and help from God's people without fear. Let's do that. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power of Romans 8. Admittedly, a bit complex. Some big concepts. Sin being condemned, God's son being sent, a spirit doing what we couldn't because the law was weakened. Oh, man, some big concepts. But in short, let us hear the resounding word of the gospel. Jesus has been condemned on the cross. Because he has been tried, my punishment has been taken. When I forget, I fall into immense shame cycles, wonder, worry, who am I? What do people say? What are they thinking? We pray that the spirit of God would hover over this place in every human heart. And we wouldn't force our way into newness, but that we would just put our hands up. We would open our heart to say, Jesus, I have tried but I'd love to have a transformed mind. I would love to have a transformed will. I would love to walk faithfully with you. I'm gonna fall. That's why I love Romans seven. The tension of the life of following Jesus, but I am grateful for Romans eight. No imperatives, all privilege. That's what it means to be connected to you. So Jesus, help us to walk faithfully with you. We are free from the law and proving and earning, but we are free for it. A glorious calling to reflect Jesus in the places that we live, work, and play. Come, Holy Spirit. We don't manipulate it. We just believe you're real. And we ask for more of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he was with his best friends, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took that bread and he broke it. Same way, and on the same night, he took a cup, and he said, this is the cup of forgiveness, a new covenant, a new way of relating to me. Do this also in remembrance of me. The cup is for you. At our church, as we come to celebrate this, we invite those who are Christians, those who apprentice under Christ to come ready, to come hungry, to come wanting more of what he offers. If that is not you, you are immensely welcome here. As I like to say regularly, every single person who is a believer at one point wasn't. Christ had to break in, right? The scales had to come off of head and heart and eyes, ears, all the things that we need to understand who he is. So if that's you today, not yet ready to say I'm a follower of Jesus, Let this be a time of reflection rather than partaking of the meal itself, time to pray and to think about what it means to experience no condemnation. Invite the spirit into your life and see what he does. But for those of you who are hungry, we invite you to come in just a moment. But let's read this together. These words of invitation, they will be on the screen. They're also on the inside right side of your worship guide as we come to eat. Let us boldly proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, the gifts of God for the people of God. I'm gonna pray and then you're welcome to come. There'll be three stations set up, one on the right, one on the left, one here in the middle. If you would just hold the bread and the cup together when you get back to your seat and we have all received, we'll partake together as a community, body, and family. So let me pray and then you're welcome to come. Lord Jesus, we thank you We thank you for your love. It's really too good to be true. That's the gospel. Too good to be true that everything I have done, that I don't have to be shamed for it. I don't have to be condemned for it. I don't have to be set outside the city for it, taken away from community, because that's what you have done. And so we eat in honor of you. We celebrate and we remember the truth of the gospel, in honor of you. Set us free by the power of the Spirit of God, not our own morality. Give us a new heart, new fuel. The runway's always been there, but without the Spirit, we can't follow where you lead. So we just pray for more of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come hungry, come ready.